Candy from Strangers by Mark Coggins is original, smart, and good to the last page, says best-selling author and executive producer of the hit TV series Bosch, Michael Connolly. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 24 Tantric Twister Twenty minutes later, I was sitting in front of Gretchen's desk, trying to assess how I felt about Wesson and what he told me. Gretchen was devoting half her attention to babysitting me and the other half to her computer. I guess I believe him, I said finally. Why wouldn't you? He hardly seems like the murdering kind. I don't care for his relationship with Monica, or Carolyn for that matter. He told me he would be bounced from the college if it were discovered, and I've no doubt that's true. Gretchen smirked. Are you sure you just aren't jealous of his success with younger women? All these brooding artistic types have to beat them off with sticks. How many girlfriends and wives did Picasso have? Anyway, it sounds like Monica was exploiting him more than he was exploiting her. Maybe, I said, and reached over to toy with her Rolodex. It fell open to the letter K, where a good half-inch of her boyfriend's cards were stacked. By the way, I said, is there such a thing as a brooding urologist type? Gretchen pointed the business end of the letter opener in my direction. No, but I'd watch out for the maiming administrative assistant type if I were you. I held up my hands in mock submission and pushed the Rolodex out of reach. A soft chime came from Gretchen's computer, and she worked the mouse to click on something on the screen. She gave me a crooked smile, just like you'd see in one of Picasso's Cubist paintings. Check this out. She swung the monitor around to show a picture of a gas-guzzling 1960s convertible, filled with dirt, parked in front of a car dealership. A crop of pink and violet pansies sprouted from the soil, and a message beneath the picture read, Next stop for the Galaxy 500? Where'd that come from? She laughed. Chris in it. Ever since he got his picture phone, he's become a regular photojournalist. You should have seen the shots he took at the zoo. There was a great one of a baboon hanging from a branch that he captioned, Reardon Family Tree. Oh yeah? And why exactly didn't I see it? Because you need a cell phone or a computer to get them. Right, I said. I knew that. I just hope he's not doing a running shtick on me and my Luddite lifestyle behind my back. Gretchen rolled her eyes and expertly threaded a stray lock of hair behind her ear. She began pounding away on the computer keyboard. Taking ourselves a little too seriously, are we? She said as she typed. I continued as if I hadn't heard her. The Galaxy, for example, is a very practical car. Safe, not likely to be stolen, plenty of storage space... Gretchen completed my sentence. Makes an excellent planter when filled with dirt. I blinked at her, not really registering the jibe, and then stood abruptly and headed for the door. The mention of storage space had triggered a thought that I felt I had to act on immediately. Gotta go, I tossed over my shoulder. Jesus, I heard Gretchen say behind my back. You can sure dish it out, but you're a wuss when it comes to taking it.
The Galaxy was in my parking space at the Tenderloin garage where I'd left it. And so were the Amazon.com packages for Carolyn that I'd picked up at the Noe Valley Starbucks. Ellen had told me that someone had tried to break into Carolyn's room the night she came home. And I had speculated it was the same people who ransacked my apartment. Tom and Jerry, the orange popsicle twins from the ashram, looking for something that tied the guru to Carolyn. There were plenty of packages in Carolyn's closet that I hadn't looked through. But when I was talking with Gretchen, I realized that just as many remained in the backseat of my car. Given that Wesson had said Carolyn's admirer knew about Eastern sexual techniques, there seemed to be a lot more urgency in determining if the greasy little faker really was sending her gifts. I shoved the packages into a big pile and sorted through them all again, looking for something I'd missed in the merchandise or the accompanying notes that hinted at Sri Atmanidhi, Eastern religions, or the Kama Sutra. I had just reacquainted myself with the patented grooves and unique sloped surface of the George Foreman grill, and thrown both the grill and the warped little note that accompanied it aside. Quote, Think of me as you warm your meat, unquote, when the jostling caused a CD on top of the pile to slide out of its package to the floor. There was no title or other text available on the CD, and the note in the package, while patently crass, was opaque enough without context, so it was easy to see how I'd skipped the CD before. The thing that made it stand out now was the picture of the green and yellow butterfly done in a folk art style on the cover. I tore off the cellophane wrapping and flipped open the jewel box. The disc inside was titled, Becoming God of Your Body, and was billed as containing Groundbreaking Discourses by Sri Atma Nidhi on the Tantra, a spiritual sexual science that not only expands consciousness, but liberates it. These meditations are guaranteed to challenge, stimulate, and enrich your life in ways you would never expect. The note read, Carolyn, I got what you need, babe. A.N. I tossed the note and CD on the front seat and fired up the galaxy. For once, it started on the first crank. Maybe I was personifying three tons of rusty scrap metal destined to be somebody's planter, but I decided the car was as eager as I was to get to Berkeley. After my last adventure at the ashram, I knew there was no way I would be able to waltz in the front door without getting arrested, beaten, or worse. So I took up a post on Telegraph Avenue near the automatic gate that opened into the lot behind the building. I could see the Guru's black Porsche 911 through the chain-link fence, gleaming in the autumn sunlight. And across the way, that same autumn sunlight gleamed off the leg braces of Beth, the ex-disciple who had given me the dirt on Needy in the first place. She and the other ragtag protesters in her group maintained their vigil, waving signs and shouting slogans at the cars stopped at the intersection with Carlton. I put on Cannonball Adderley's Cannonball Takes Charge CD and slumped behind the wheel, contemplating the metal fire door at the back of the ashram that I imagined Needy would have to come through when he punched the clock after a hard day's work of enlightenment and consciousness raising. A class at a nearby karate studio let out, and a passel of teenage board breakers dressed in cotton pajamas boiled out onto the sidewalk, shouting and laughing and karate chopping in the air as they went by. The rearview mirror showed the bus stop behind me, a pair of white-haired Asian men sharing the bench, and a bag of lychee nuts with a pile of peeled skins and discarded pits between them. I made it through the Adderley CD, and another from Benny Carter, and the only thing remotely interesting that happened was a frisbee came sailing over the fence that separated the parking lot from the backyard of a tumbled-down cottage. A moment passed, 
The fence shook, and ten fingers appeared at the top, below the coil of razor wire that crowned the wooden planks, followed by the hair, forehead, and sad eyes of a Hispanic kid who glanced wistfully at his lost disc and then dropped abruptly from sight. It was almost 5 p.m. when the back door of the ashram finally swung open. A blonde with a pixie cut and upturned nose who looked as wholesome as white gloves on Easter Sunday came skipping out. She glanced expectantly behind her, and wonder of wonders, Sri Atmanidhi himself materialized in the doorway. He wore a flowing long-sleeved purple shirt, his crystal amulet, chinos, and a pair of sandals. If he'd come within spitting distance of a shampoo bottle since the last time I'd seen him, there was no evidence of it in his greasy coiffure. Needy's appearance caused two things. The first was a pronounced increase in the energy associated with the shouts and gesticulations coming from the protesters. The second was a fumbled preparation on my part to tail him wherever he might be going. I managed to get the car started and the shift indicator and drive before the automatic gate pulled open to admit the Porsche, but Needy surprised me by launching out of the parking lot at near racetrack speed. I hadn't even rolled past the gate by the time he was through the intersection, the blonde girl's hand dangling out the passenger window as if she were trailing it in the water on a canoe ride. Two eggs intended by the protesters for the Porsche exploded on the windshield of the galaxy, putting me at an even further disadvantage as I groped after him on telegraph, with the wipers smearing the yoke into a near impenetrable haze. I stayed with him for about three blocks. Then he zipped through a corner service station onto Dwight Way while we were stopped at a light, and I was preoccupied wiping my windshield clean with the fat end of my tie. The tie was ruined and so was the tail job by the time I realized Needy had given me the slip. With horns blaring behind me, I watched the letters on his My Karma vanity plate grow small as he zoomed towards the Berkeley Hills, and then I slowly and reluctantly pulled into the service station to hose down my window. After I washed off the egg, I gave the service station more of my business to the extent of using their men's room. When I came out, a kid on a scooter with a ponytail sticking out of the bottom of his helmet was parked in front of my car, looking annoyed at the way I'd blocked access to the air and water spigots. I held up my hand to forestall any smart remarks, piled into the car, and cut across telegraph, heading back to the ashram. I didn't have any particular motive in mind except a lukewarm desire to look the place over once more. But when I caught sight of Beth standing at the corner, a new thought occurred to me. I made an illegal U-turn at the next light and swung back around to park by the curb. Beth and the rest of the protesters were stacking their signs, boxing their flyers, and giving each other hugs, preparatory to knocking off for the day. I tooted the horn to get her attention, and then waved towards the car. She trundled down the sidewalk to the passenger door of the galaxy, leaning heavily on her aluminum cane and shaking her head as I struggled to get the electric window to come down. What a gentleman, she said when the window finally receded. Make the cripple come to you. Sorry, I said. I didn't think. She shrugged. We'll pretend I needed the exercise. Did you find Carolyn Stockwell? Not exactly. She came home on her own, but she's had a very bad experience. I still think Needy's involved and I'm trying to get leverage on him. So? So I wondered if you knew where he lived. She grinned like Christmas morning and made a show of examining the nails of one hand. They were chewed painfully short and painted a purplish black. You going to invite me in? She asked without looking up. Or are you going to keep me standing on the sidewalk? 
I reached across the galaxy bench seat and popped the latch. She pulled the door open wide, threw her cane on the floor, positioned herself to drop back, and did a free fall onto the seat. I pulled Needy's CD and note out of the way just before her hefty, gingham-clad cheeks hit the vinyl. She hoisted her legs around to the front and turned to me to smile. Now that's more like it. Welcome aboard, I said. I think you were just about to tell me where Needy lives. That's what you were hoping, anyway. Assuming I do know his address, what exactly are you going to do if I tell you? Mail him a Whitman sampler? Try again. I'd been holding the CD and note at my side, and now slid them into a pouch on the driver door. I wasn't sure why, but I didn't want Beth to see them. The idea is to pay him a visit, I said vaguely, and ask him a few questions. Questions about Carolyn Stockwell? Yes, and other things. Beth put her index and forefinger down on the vinyl seat and walked them across the space between us. She stopped about an inch from my leg. And would any of those things concern illegal or otherwise scandalous activities? You could say that. Goody, she said and tweaked my thigh with her forefinger. Then I'm coming too. I pulled my leg out of range and rubbed the spot she'd nailed. Didn't your mother ever tell you to keep your hands at home? And what makes you think I'd want you along? She laughed. Oh, I'm sure you wouldn't, unless there were no other way I'd tell you how to get there. I twisted in the seat to look at her straight on. She laced her fingers together and rested her chin on them, batting her eyelashes at me in a coquettish fashion. I stood about five seconds of the display and then growled, All right, but keep a low profile and let me do the talking. Whatever you say, Chief. I turned the ignition key sharply and brought the galaxy coughing to life. Pull the door closed and let's roll. Hold on a minute. Give another toot on the horn. I want to get Ronnie's attention. Although the protesters on the corner had dwindled, Ronnie was apparently one of the two remaining men. Beth waved at him after I honked, and he came pounding down the sidewalk. He was short and chubby, and when he peered into the car in an unselfconscious way, I could see from the distinctive look of his flattened features that he had been born with Down syndrome. Hi, Beth, he said a little too loudly. What you doing? I'm taking a little ride with August here. You'll have to catch the bus home by yourself. No problem he said good-naturedly. Is this the wicked handsome dude you were telling me about? He pronounced the last syllable of the word handsome like it rhymed with boom. Beth Redden gave a shy, up-from-under look at me. No, she mumbled. That was a different guy. But there is one other thing, Ronnie. What's that? I'd like to borrow your digital camera. Of course, Beth. You are one of my best friends. He unhooked a small leather case from his belt and passed it through the window. I just charged the battery, so you can take lots of pictures. Thanks, Ronnie. I probably won't take that many, but it's good to know I can. Ronnie nodded and thrust his hand into the car. Nice to meet you, dude. I took his hand, which was soft and slightly damp. He gave mine two pronounced pumps and then released it. See you guys later. Bye, Ronnie, said Beth, and watched as he slammed the door closed a little too hard. I put the car in gear and pulled out from the curb. Wicked handsome dude... I said out of the corner of my mouth. Don't even wave the opener at that can of worms. All right, but the camera? She ignored the question and pointed down the street. We could do with a little more driving and less talking. She directed me onto Dwight Way in the direction that Needy had gone, and we stuck with it until it dead-ended into panoramic. We went right on panoramic, 
snaking our way further up into the foothills, with the road getting narrower and the houses getting more palatial with each switchback that we traversed. When we came to a T-intersection where Dwight Way picked up again, I was more than a little annoyed to find our route required us to turn back onto it. Apparently, all I would have had to do to find Needy on my own was fumble along the first street I'd seen him go down. Beth didn't make me feel any better. After half a block, she smiled and tugged at my sleeve. There, she said, pointing at the house on the left. How about that? Turns out he's not that far from the ashram. Yeah, I allowed. How about that? The house was made of rough-hewn timber, stained a tobacco juice brown, and was built on stilts that projected up from the hillside. It was massive, blocky, and ugly, looking like an overgrown Lincoln log cabin, but I didn't have any doubts that it was worth a good $45 million in the Bay Area's overheated real estate market. A grooved concrete driveway rose steeper than a ski jump from street level to a garage. From our vantage point, the swooping tail fin of Needy's Porsche could just be made out at the edge of the open garage, and beyond that, looming in the shadows, a monstrous refrigerated case for wine storage took up the entire back wall. Deflated helium balloons hung like shrunken heads from a pair of granite posts that flanked the drive. I nodded towards them. Looks like we missed the party. Wait a few days, said Beth. Needy's always got some kind of love fest, open house, feel-good orgy scheduled. That's when he nails the girls. Oh yeah? Beth nodded and chewed thoughtfully on her black and pinky fingernail. It was slim pickings. He gets them high on hashish and takes them down to his basement fun room for the fun and games. It used to be the wine cellar, but when he figured out it was the perfect place to molest people in isolation, while the party kept rolling upstairs, he moved out all the wine and filled the room up with bean bags, mood lighting, and hidden lubricant dispensers. I grimaced and made a mental note to take a scalding hot shower when I got home. You seem to know an awful lot about this, I said. Have you been down there? Not with him. I told you before that he never molested me, but I've been in every room in the house at one time or another. I even have the blueprints for it. Blueprints? Why would you have the blueprints? Beth reached down to tap one of the metal slats on her leg braces. Me and my crippled legs paid for the house, with the settlement I got from the automobile accident. I whistled softly. How much are we talking about? My shyster lawyer took 40%, but I still ended up with half a million. That was enough for the architect in the construction. Some other fool donated the land. I lived in the house with Needy for a time after it was built, but it didn't take long for him to con me into leaving. He said he needed my room for an indigent ashram member. The next time I saw it, he'd filled it with a collection of his Fender guitars. He's got about 15 vintage Stratocasters, and he can't even put three chords together. An edge of strain crept into her voice as she said this last bit. I watched as her chin began to tremble. She turned away from me to sniff and rub at her eyes. I'm sorry, Beth, I said, and reached to comfort her. She pushed my hand away. It's only money. What matters now is preventing him from ruining other lives. That's why I'm here. I nodded and let my gaze wander back up the hill. Stopping him from ruining other lives is a tall order, kiddo. I'm on board for causing him as much trouble as possible. But all we can do today is ring the doorbell and roust him when he comes to the door. If he doesn't answer, or his bodyguards show up, there's not much else to do short of pulling a gun. Fuck ringing the doorbell. She yanked on a gold chain around her neck and produced a house key from beneath her peasant blouse. It's a master. Works on all the doors. I smiled. I love a woman with resources. 
I wrestled the galaxy over to the side of the road and killed the motor. I have to ask this, even though I'm almost certain of the answer. Are you sure you want to go in with me? It's still breaking and entering, even if you have a key. Beth stared at me levelly for a moment. Next question. Silly me. Okay, next question. Any alarms? There's an alarm, but he never turns it on. It really doesn't matter, though, because I know the code. I opened the door to the galaxy and stepped outside. Leaning back into the seat, I said, I wish you'd stop bogging us down with all these trivial concerns. Let's get to it. Beth sniffed fiercely and blinked away her remaining tears. Damn straight, she said. Given the house's hillside location and Beth's disability, there was no opportunity to sneak up on it, so we decided to simply brazen it out. We made our way up the concrete drive, Beth taking slow and deliberate steps up the steep incline, and then followed a flagstone path through a terraced and carefully landscaped garden to the front door. If Needy had been watching from a window, he would have had a good five minutes to get ready. Beth's key worked like a champ. The door opened on a foyer with rounded plaster walls painted in an orange-colored wash. There was an octagonal skylight in the ceiling at the center of the space, and the light from it shone on a near-poster-sized photograph of Needy, hanging in a gilded frame. The top of the picture was canted forward from the wall so that Needy seemed to be looking down on you, and there was a rough stone ledge, or altar beneath, and a small silk rug on the floor below. The whole thing had a sort of shrine-like appearance, so when I lifted the lid of the earthenware jar on the altar, I wasn't surprised to find it filled with currency. I dropped in the bikini wax coupon I'd received in the mail, and fortuitously retained in my wallet, and set the lid back down. Beth snorted. You should have scooped out the cash. I put my finger to my lips. Maybe on the way out, I said in an undertone. I stood with my head cocked, listening for the sound of other people in the house, but the only thing I heard was a distant sigh of a refrigerator compressor shutting down. What's the plan? Beth pointed to a hallway that opened on the left. Through the living room to the kitchen, and then down the stairs. To where? To the fun room, of course. You're certain. Come on. Come on. He didn't bring that ice capades Barbie here to meditate. I held my hand out in an after-you gesture and fell in step behind her. We went through a large room that was five laps to the mile with low couches, wrought iron tables, and intricately patterned agra rugs scattered on top of an ebony tile floor. Above us, an ugly hammered metal lantern hung from a chain like a grotesque chrysalis. At the far end of the room was a swinging door that Beth indicated led to the kitchen. I cracked it a few inches to reconnoiter before blundering through. From what I could see, there was nothing in the way of people, but plenty in the way of expensive, restaurant-quality appliances, cookware, cutlery, and assorted gizmos and gadgets. I doubted Needy cooked much for himself, but when he did, he wouldn't be warming his food in the can like I did. We pushed through and came to yet another door, this one situated between Needy's gleaming wolf range and his oversized sub-zero freezer. Beth nodded towards it and whispered, Down one level for the fun. I nodded and pulled open the door quietly to poke my head into the dimly lit space beyond. The acrid smell of marijuana hit me almost immediately. A staircase dropped precipitously to a basement room painted in the same orange wash as the foyer. Black beanbag chairs were sprinkled around like raisins in a pudding, and in the middle, like a plum, sat a padded ottoman covered in black leather. A hookah with two smoking hoses was set up in the center of that, 
and just beyond the cobra-shaped mouthpieces lolled the head of the blonde girl from the Porsche. She was staring blankly into space with an expression of anticipation or dread, the way you might look if a dentist was tapping your back molars to locate a bad tooth. The reality was much worse. She lay naked on the ottoman with her legs propped on Needy's bare shoulders. He crouched on the floor like a pudgy gargoyle with his fingers clutched around her ankles and his loins pressed against hers. The scene was revolting with a capital R, but there was also an undeniable element of absurdity. Needy's eyes were rolled up to the ceiling, and he looked as if he was in some sort of trance. Neither member of the copulating couple was moving or thrusting, and they seemed to have no interest in starting. Did you hear something? said the girl. She sounded doped. Hush, my dear, said Needy. Uniting of the male energy of Shiva with the feminine principle of Shakti requires intense concentration. Do not be distracted by ambient sounds. Whatever, said the girl, and shifted her narrow hips slightly. Don't do that, said Needy. He made a grunting sound. A beat went by, then the girl gasped. She propped herself up on her elbows. What is that? she demanded. Nothing. You said you could last for hours, that you weren't going to come. I, I told you not to move. You shot your wad, didn't you? The girl was almost screaming now. You said no rubber because gurus don't ejaculate. You said they retain their semen to conserve the, the something or other. The kundalini energy. Well, you must be one dead energizer bunny now. I'm absolutely swimming in spunk. I can already feel it dripping out. Please, Kira, there's no need to be crude. I hated to agree with Needy, but I was certainly beginning to question the wholesome label I'd given the girl earlier. Behind me, I felt Beth press in close, jamming me in the thigh with the handle of her cane. Get out of the way, she whispered. What are you doing? Watch and see. She elbowed past me to the first step of the stairs, where she pulled Ronnie's camera from the big pocket in front of her dress. She aimed it at the couple on the ottoman, who were still entwined in tantric bliss, and pressed the shutter. The flash went off with a paralytic light, and after a few seconds of stunned silence, Kira let go with a teenage slasher movie shriek. She twisted out of the coupling with Needy, catching him in the jaw with her foot, and tried to claw her way off the ottoman. Beth's camera recharged, and she fired off a second picture. It turned out to be the money shot, because it showed Needy in all his naked glory, holding Kira by the foot as she struggled to get away. When later uploaded to the protesters' website, and dozens of other sites across the internet. It gave the impression that Needy was forcing himself on a beautiful blonde girl one-third his age, when in reality all he was doing at that point was trying to save himself from a second kick to the jaw. Not that I was shedding any crocodile tears from Needy. What I was doing was hustling past Beth to the bottom of the stairs. By the time I got there, Kira was scuttling towards me on her hands and knees, while Needy stood hunched beside the ottoman, trying to cover himself with one hand, while he rubbed the point of his jaw with the other. Kira stopped when she saw my feet. I reached down to give her a little nudge. Get up, Kira. You look like a shih tzu. She came to her feet in a smooth motion, hugging her small breasts while she looked me over sourly. I saw that her shoulders and chest were sprinkled with silver glitter. Who are you? she said. Just a fellow who wants to speak to the guru. Couldn't you have picked a time when everyone had a few more clothes on? I grinned in spite of myself. Good point. Why don't you throw yours on and have a seat on the ottoman? Needy looked at me with real fear in his eyes. 
He wasn't the same guru without his robes and bodyguards. What about me? he asked. Beth came chunking down the stairs behind me. Don't let him get dressed. He needs to be humiliated and humbled. He may need to be humbled, I said, but I also need to keep my lunch down. I jerked my chin towards the ottoman. Go sit with Kira and drape your shirt over your privates. Needy recovered his shirt from the floor with an air of fractured dignity and dropped onto the ottoman, rearranging the purple cloth several times before he achieved satisfactory coverage. After injecting herself into her hip-hugger jeans, Kira flopped down next to him and crossed her legs with a big sigh. She was already bored with the whole thing. Beth, said Needy, I would have expected better of you. He fixed us with a trenchant stare, but you are both going to jail for breaking and entering. I wouldn't push the B&E thing too hard if I were you, I said. I caught your goons red-handed as they came out of my apartment, and I'd lay odds they attempted the same thing at Carolyn Stockwell's house the night before. Of course, breaking and entering is nothing once you graduate to maiming young women and murder. Needy frowned slightly and went through the motions of brushing at glitter from Kira that adhered to his ample gut. If you are referring to Tom and Jerry, I'm sure they had nothing to do with the burglary at your apartment or anywhere else. As to the maiming and murder, I can't imagine what you are frothing on about. The hookah made an odd gurgling noise, like motor oil being poured down a drain. Nobody paid any attention to it but Kira, who leaned back to fiddle with it. I came up to stand in front of Needy. I said, Carolyn Stockwell was kidnapped and forcibly tattooed with a grotesque picture of a long-tongued dragon ensnaring a butterfly. Now she's in a coma after a suicide attempt. Her best friend Monica was killed when she had a similar butterfly removed. You were visiting their website and mailing them gifts and you sent Tom and Jerry to my apartment and Carolyn's house to recover them. The only place they didn't look was my car, and that's where I had a package you sent to her containing your tantric sex CD, a CD that has a picture of a butterfly on the cover. Kira had turned back from the hookah about halfway through my little speech. Jesus, she said, you're creeping me out. Quiet, you little cunt, snapped Needy. You don't know the first thing about this. I know you gave me a tantric sex CD with a butterfly in the cover, she snapped back. That is a coincidence. There's nothing significant about a butterfly. We don't even know that what he says about the tattoos in the other girls is true. It's probably something he made up to pressure me. The San Francisco police don't think I made it up, I said. They've already got someone under arrest. I just happen to think they've got the wrong man. We know that the killer's done this before, and I've learned that he's studied tantric sex. You've got a history of sexually abusing young women. You're a so-called expert on tantric sex. You got the so-called part right, put in Kira. And you chose a butterfly to illustrate your CD, I continued. There's way more piled up against you already than the guy they got in jail. Needy smacked his hand against the leather of the ottoman. Will you stop with the butterfly already? It means nothing. I don't even know how it got on the cover. My staff at the ashram handle all that. You can't break into my house and threaten me on the basis of a freaking butterfly. It's ridiculous. He's right, said a voice behind me. I twisted back to look at Beth. She shrugged. I drew the butterfly. I did all the CD covers back then. It was the only thing that gave me any pleasure. I don't think he knew or cared about it. Needy flung his hands up in the air. You see? I pulled my hand across my face and thought angry thoughts. Then why did you send Tom and Jerry to ransack my apartment? 
I never said I. I reached over to grab him by the ear, Three Stooges style. Cut the bullshit. Needy winced and tried to levitate off the ottoman as I pulled on his ear. I don't know what happened to Carolyn Stockwell, he said in a strained voice. But whatever it was, I knew I couldn't afford to be linked to her through the gifts. I couldn't stand the bad publicity. And you sent Tom and Jerry to Carolyn's house for the same reason? Yes, to retrieve the gifts. Then where were you last night? Needy flicked a nervous glance over to Kira. At the ashram, with her. Well, I said. Her mouth flopped open and she pressed her palms to the side of her head. Christ, she said. I can't believe I'm alibying this bastard. She took him in with a contemptuous stare. Yes, damn it. We got high and played Twister. He spent the whole time trying to get into my pants, but I told him no. I wanted to wait for the right moment. And what a special moment it's turned out to be. I grunted and turned back to him. That's the whole story. You've had no recent contact with Carolyn. None. I sighed. I felt like the magician who'd failed to make the elephant disappear. Well, I said evenly, you better get used to bad publicity. I've got an idea that Beth's photos aren't for her family album. But if you ever try to retaliate in any way against Beth or me, or Kira here, then I'm going straight to the San Francisco police. There's a certain knuckle-dragging police detective there I'll have no trouble convincing that you are a good suspect after all. Now, are you on the same plane of enlightenment with me? I gave his earlobe an extra twist. Yes, damn it, he said. I'm with you. I released him and stepped back. Fine. Let me just leave you with a favorite quotation from your own book. Desire nothing that would bring disgrace. Beth snapped one more picture of him then. Disgraced sect leader caught with his pants down would have been an excellent caption. And she and I headed back up the staircase. Kira hesitated, but then came bounding off the ottoman to join us, which was probably wise since Needy started cursing all of us at the top of his lungs once we made it to the kitchen. When we got outside, we piled into the galaxy and drove to the Berkeley Youth Hostel where Kira was staying. What will you do now? I asked in the driveway. Shower take a morning-after pill, and catch the Greyhound back to Barstow, in that order. Smart girl, said Beth. I dropped Beth at her apartment in the Petrero Hill District of San Francisco. Thanks for everything, kiddo, I said when I'd helped her out of the car. She smiled, avoiding eye contact, and waggled her cane idly in the air. Yeah, sorry I ruined it for you there with Needy. That's okay. I wanted the truth and that's what I got. At least I can eliminate him and move on. She curled her finger at me like she was going to whisper a secret. I leaned down, and she surprised me by planting a big sloppy one on my lips. You are the wicked handsome dude, she said. You have been listening to Candy from Strangers, a book mystery scene magazine described as crackling and whip smart. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. <laughs>